Hi, it's Caroline here. And before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to let you know a couple of things about what's going to be happening on the podcast over the next couple of weeks. As you'll have heard from our new trailer, we're about to begin coverage of the trial of Constance Martin and Mark Gordon, which begins later this week. But if you've been listening for a while, you'll know that the sentencing for Boy X and Girl Y for the murder of Brianna Jai is taking place next Friday. So Liz and I will, of course, be covering that sentencing. And I've got a new colleague called Jack Hardy, who's joining me for the new trial. So this is whatever the podcast equivalent of Do Not Adjust Your Set announcement is. So basically, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be bringing you the coverage of Constance Martin and Mark Gordon, while also making sure we'll bring you all the coverage of the sentencing of Girl X and Boy Y. And of course, at that sentencing, they are also going to be named. Now, we've got a really busy 2024 planned. And thank you as ever for listening. Your incredible support really does mean a lot. Now... On with today's episode. A boy and a girl, both aged 16, have been found guilty of the murder of a trans teenager in Cheshire. 16 year old. Steve was stabbed with a hunting knife 28 times with her head, neck, chest, and back in linear. And the jury took just four hours and 40 minutes before it came back a few minutes ago and found both the defendants guilty. The girl who killed Brianna was fascinated by her. The boy referred to her as it. So we're back after the Christmas break and it's now around five weeks since two teenagers were convicted of murdering Brianna Jai. So Girl X and Boy Y are going to be sentenced to life in prison next Friday. We know that and the judge will then have to decide the minimum term that they'll spend in prison before they can be considered for parole. And Mrs Justiceship has already indicated that she's going to be lifting the reporting restrictions ahead of that hearing. So the media will be able to reveal their identities for the first time. Welcome to episode 12, Naming the Killers. So today, what we're going to do is just a recap on what happened before Christmas at the end of this trial. And we're going to bring you an interview with a barrister who's going to walk us through just the decision that Justice Ship had to make and what she had to weigh in the balance about whether she was going to name these two defendants or not. So just to recap, um, last month on December the 20th, um, Girl X and Boy Y um, were convicted of the murder of Brianna Jai at Manchester Crown Court after a four-week trial. The jury deliberated for just short of five hours and found them guilty of plotting to kill and murder Brianna in what the court heard was a brutal and sustained attack in Linear Park in Colchester almost a year ago in February last year. It's hard to forget that a lot of the evidence that we heard was incredibly distressing. Brianna was stabbed 28 times, mainly in the back and the neck. Now, we know that Girl X and Boy White were seen by a couple who were walking their dog. Now, they were arrested the following day and what they tried to do was they tried to blame each other. But the evidence against them was pretty overwhelming, not just the eyewitness evidence, but crucially the forensic evidence and the messages that they exchanged between them. 
there was lots and lots of messages which formed a key element to the case um, that they sent to each other on Snapchat and WhatsApp. And they revealed really that Girl X had this, what the police called, thirst for murder. She'd got an obsession with watching murder and torture on the dark web. Um, you remember she'd written those notes about serial killers and she'd sent Boy Y that note that was shown to the jury that detailed exactly how she wanted to kill Brianna. Yeah, so that led to the afternoon of February the 11th last year when they lured Brianna to the park on the pretense that she would take drugs with them and then they killed her in broad daylight in quite a busy dog-walking area. Now, we know that the jury rejected Boy Y's claims that it was Girl X who stabbed Brianna to death when he was going for a wee behind a tree in the park. And that was because they'd heard that Brianna's blood was found all over his ski jacket and his trainers and it was also on the hunting knife that police later found in his wardrobe. Now we know that there was little forensic evidence that put Girl X with that knife in her hand that day. There was no blood found on her clothes. But the jury decided from what they'd heard and what they'd seen that she was just as culpable as Boy Y. Yeah, so the judge has already decided, Caroline, that these two, Girl X and Boy Y, will be named and their identities revealed for the first time to the public when the sentencing hearing takes place. Now, that's not a decision she will have taken lightly, but it is fairly common in serious cases like this one for child defendants to be named. What usually happens when children are convicted of any crime is that they're automatically given anonymity. But once they have been found guilty, the media, and in this case we know it was ITV, can apply to have the restrictions lifted. Now, the starting point is always for open justice and transparency. So the idea is that the media should be able to report fully and frankly all serious crimes, even if they involve children. So we know that while that is the starting point, the defence can object to their clients being named, particularly children being named in these cases, and they did. Um, in this case, uh, the defence for both Girl X and Boy Y did uh, raise objections to either of them being named. But also we know in this case that social services, the youth offending teams and psychologists who have been looking after Girl X and Boy Y all also opposed them being identified. Now, We've subsequently seen the judgment from Mrs Justice Yip, so we know a few details about what happened here and we know what was said. Um, and what we know in terms of what was said is that they all said they felt it would be detrimental to Girl X and Boy Y's rehabilitation. And they talked about concerns around their mental health. We know, as we heard in court and we brought to you during the podcast, that both struggle with autism to varying degrees. Uh, we know that measures were put in place for them during the trial to be able to cope with the trial process, like fidget toys and being in different rooms and having curtains around them when they gave evidence. Um, they were all put in place to enable them to participate in the trial. But all of these agencies said... Uh, to Mrs Justice Yip that they felt naming these two would put them at risk in custody and put their wider families at risk in the community. And we do know, Liz, don't we, that Girl X's family have received death threats and had their windows smashed. But the, the defence can object 
And then it's up to them to, the onus is up to them to justify why they should just stay in place. Yeah, so effectively, Liz, she was saying that they're going to be named in 18 months anyway, in any event, because that's automatic. The minute they turn 18, they will be named. And she felt that would just start the sort of media merry-go-round and a sort of storm all over again. And not naming them now simply delays that process. But... You know, as we said, and Mrs Justice Ship has done these applications before where she's ruled differently, lifting these restrictions is not a foregone conclusion and every single case is different. There have been cases in recent times where judges have decided not to name children who've killed or committed really serious offences and... Mrs Justice Ship herself presided over one such case a couple of years ago. And in that case, it was a 14-year-old boy who had killed um, Ava White in Liverpool. And again, Mrs Justice Ship weighed up the decision of whether to name that particular boy or not. And she decided in that case that she wouldn't name him. So what we wanted to do today was just speak to somebody who can talk us through a little bit more around... Um, how these decisions are made and the sorts of balance that has to be struck. So we spoke to Chloe Ashley. Now, she's a barrister based in Birmingham. She covers trials both for the defence and for prosecution all over the country. And she walked us through just how these decisions are made and how they're really not easy decisions for judges to come to. So, um, obviously, as you're saying, Brianna's case is one of the most significant cases in which there have been two child defendants for some time. Understandably, almost goes without saying, that attracts significant public attention. The longer that the case has been reported on, that's obviously increased. The starting point is that ordinarily, and I'm sure this has already been covered in the podcast, these defendants were 15 at the time of the offence, they're now 16. They're automatically entitled to reporting restrictions um, due to their age. The court then has to weigh into the balance whether to, for want of a better way of putting it, amend those reporting restrictions. Um, But like you say, there's a number of different factors that the court will think about in deciding whether to do that. So, for example, it's a bit of a balancing act whether or not to lift them. On one hand, the judge has got to think about the public interest and the principle of open justice. And what I mean by that is making sure that legal proceedings, generally, the rule of thumb is that they should be transparent. This isn't a country where we have, for example, secret courts, members of the public are able to go into court and watch proceedings. Um, And the members of the public are not necessarily invited to, but they have the ability to comment on them. And obviously, by putting an embargo on people's names being published in the press, or indeed on social media platforms, to an extent that limits that. But then the other consideration is, what about the welfare of the defendants? Because they are so young. And um, when arriving at that decision, as we know from Mrs Justice Yip's decision, and as you say, she's an extremely experienced judge, she's had to think about all those different things in coming to her, her final determination, which is ultimately, as you say, these two defendants' names will be in the public domain once they have been sentenced. So I suppose in the case of child defendants, if you're defending, you're thinking about what are the long-term effects going to be on my clients? A particular consideration in the case of a child defendant is rehabilitation. 
can you be properly rehabilitated if you have that kind of notoriety? And the other thing is as well, it's not just the defendants who will be affected, it's their families. And whilst the local community may already know who those two, and they are children, are, the wider public doesn't. And being associated with two young people who've committed a crime with this kind of notoriety is is very difficult for the families. And when you represent somebody who's in that situation, you know, and I'm I'm sure if you spoke to other defence advocates, they'd say the same thing. It's not just the defendant this affects, it's everyone else connected. And we know from speaking to people close to the case that um, certainly Girl X's wider family have already received death threats. We know that They've had some, you know, the windows put in on their house. So I know from speaking to people close to the case that they are obviously naturally apprehensive, but on the same token, understand that there is a public interest and there is a need for public debate on this case because it's so serious about, you know, why these two kids from seemingly stable homes came together to do this awful, awful crime. We know, don't we, that in coming to her decision, Mrs. Justice Yip has had um, a comprehensive review undertaken by social services and the Youth Offending Association in making representations about the defendants and a particular emphasis on their mental health. But as you say, accurate reporting of proceedings in a trial as big as this and as significant with all of the issues that have come into it and so many different interested groups um, it serves an important purpose, doesn't it, in ensuring public understanding. And that really, I suppose, is the overwhelming consideration for the judge. On the point you make, we should actually probably clarify that the judge wouldn't lift the restriction had an application not been made. It's not something that's in her hands unless the press asks for it. That's right, isn't it? That is right, yes. So ordinarily what would happen is that the restriction in this case would expire when both the defendants become adults in 2025. In order for it to be lifted beforehand, as you rightly say, Caroline, the press would have to apply to the court to lift it. So in 2025, like you said, Chloe, when they turn 18, the reporting restrictions expire because they're deemed as adults. And there are cases. The one that springs to mind straight away is Sean Mercer, the boy that murdered Rhys Jones. Now, the reporting restriction wasn't lifted in his case, immediately after his conviction. But as soon as it expired, when he was 18, he was he was named and there was a, a, another flurry of press interest. So that would have happened if she hadn't have lifted the reporting restriction. But I was doing a bit of research on it last night and I was interested to see that there has been precedent where um, lawyers for defendants have applied for that anonymity to continue even after they're 18, to try and, um, I'm assuming, to aid their rehabilitation. So that is an option that that would have been available to Mrs Justiceship as well. As you say, more often than not, the key considerations for a defence advocate in making those applications or indeed appealing a decision are obviously the welfare of their client, taking into account their mental health, the risk to them in custody, because let's not forget that being in prison, it's a hostile environment and it is very dangerous. If you haven't been able to retain a sense of anonymity and then you're exposed in custody, there's a huge risk to you. And of course, like you said, you know, at the minute they'll be in secure children's homes, essentially, a secure accommodation 
um, for children until they turn 18, but then at some point they are going to have to go into the mainstream prison population, the adult population. Certainly if I was defending the either of these um, young people, that would be my primary concern and the risk, you know, the overall risk to them as time goes on. Um, because what happens, isn't it, once their names are released, there'll be that media flurry, the initial interest and excitement. But once your name's out there in the public domain, in a case that is, um, and I'm sorry to use this word, but so notorious and has such a huge public interest, that's not going to diminish Every time their name's Googled, this is going to come up. Although the case isn't com- comparable in terms of the facts of it, if you think about the case of Shannon Matthews and her mother, her mother is still hounded by the press on occasion when, you know, they know where, they, where she is. Um, and I, when I say hounded, I mean by some media outlets, not by all professional journalists. But she has a, a notoriety that means that, she, that she's always going to be of public interest. And these two defendants, I'm, I'm afraid to say, it, it's quite likely they'll fall into that category. I'd forgotten, because you and I covered um, Sean Mercer, Liz, yeah, together, we did. didn't we, at the time? And I had actually forgotten that he was not yeah. Identified. I mean, that that's stag- when you look at that in context of other cases of similar levels of gravity. It's interesting that they decided not to name him. I think time moves on, though, doesn't it? And it's something that Liz and I have discussed previously. We're living in a different age now, where the speed of reporting and the method of reporting is very different. You know, there's so many different means by which we can get news out there that I suppose that that does mean that the pressure for the public to have accurate information is greater than perhaps it might have been when the Rhys Jones case was being considered. Yeah, I agree. It's the kind of 24-7 nature of news and the, um, you know, and the internet, essentially. You know, these two defendants, their names will be forever etched. You know, they'll be out there in the ether on the internet forever now. Is that a consideration, Chloe, though, that the fact that these two names, they are out there? So is it a consideration that it's just easier now to know who people are than it was back then? Because the other thing you can say as well about time changing, actually, is that the way that the trial was run for Venables Thompson would never happen now. You know, we do know a lot more now. The system knows a lot more now about how you deal with children to enable them to participate in the justice process. And that's what Mrs... The other thing Mrs Justice Shit was so conscious of was putting things in place to enable these two defendants to understand and be part of a process rather than in the case of Venables and Thompson you know, where they were sitting on cushions just so they could actually see over yeah. the dock. I mean, that seems incredible now, that, doesn't it? Yeah, so in the way, it's changed in one way that you're saying you're more likely to name maybe because the internet. But on another way, we'd never, you'd never see a trial like we saw for Venables and Thompson now because the understanding of children's ability to participate in the process is far greater. And the kind of instances where, you know, both the defendants were allowed fidget toys in the dock. They, you know, he was doing uh, um, Sudoku on occasion. You know, she didn't make them come to court every single day. They were allowed to view the proceedings from over video link from where they were being held. You know, she put special measures in for when Girl X gave her evidence. Um, she had a 
curtain round her so just the jury could see her to avoid distractions. You know, he obviously gave his evidence in an annex, you know, typing his evidence because he has this problem with mutism. So all these things that she put in place, you know, are a million miles away from the way Venables and Thompson were tried. Yeah, I mean, just to give some context, obviously at the time at which Thompson and Venables were, were tried, they were effectively, as you both rightly say, tried as adults. Um, and if you speak to anybody who had any involvement with that trial or even just read about it, and, and there are a wealth of texts about that case, as you say, they were sat on cushions. They couldn't even reach the benches in court, which often are slightly raised properly to be able to see what was going on. For us now, it sounds slightly horrifying. And there was this watershed moment um, when the Youth Justice and Criminal Evidence Act came into force that said, look, and I'm watering this down, obviously, for the purposes of the podcast, that children need to be able to participate in proceedings fully and effectively. In this case, there have been substantial variations to the ordinary court process, as we understand it, what we call special measures, to enable both these defendants who have a, a range of vulnerabilities, um, including this selective mutism and other concentration difficulties because of their age, that have meant that they have been able to, as you say, sit there with, with a fidget toy, perhaps not be present for every single element of the trial, having that curtain around um, the female defendant when she was giving her evidence. But all of those considerations by the judge, and I appreciate to some people who are listening, this might, might sound like, oh, well, we're being slightly soft with young people who are on trial. Is there really a necessity for that? There is, because if somebody is completely uncomfortable it's almost an obvious point, they they can't give their evidence well, they can't participate properly, they can't give their lawyers proper instructions. There was a very significant case in which the very now sadly deceased um, Isabella Forshaw, King's Counsel, was involved in, in which the court reiterated all of these different considerations that a judge must have regard to, and prosec- prosecution and defence counsel, obviously, at a trial to try to make sure that young people can properly participate in proceedings. Yes, well, that's important, isn't it? Because from the uh, victim's perspective and their families, the worst thing that could happen is this trial runs for whatever duration, which is a long and arduous process for everyone, but particularly the family sitting there listening to this terrible stuff. And then a judgment comes out that it wasn't fair and we have to start all over again. That that doesn't help anyone. So you can understand those considerations. Absolutely. The last thing, I mean, as you've said, I prosecute and I defend. The last thing anybody wants is for you to find a point to appeal and, you know, go before the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal gives you leave to appeal the conviction and the whole process starts again. And the judge in this case was... Um, was obviously mindful of Brianna's family when she was making all these measures for the defendants and pointedly, you know, spoke to them in the public gallery a few times and said, just to explain to them and said, you know, while I am making these allowances for them, please don't think that I haven't got you at the forefront of my mind. Yeah, protecting the integrity of the process is, you know, the fundamental consideration for any any judge presiding over such an important case. I think judges are very good at explaining the process quite directly to a victim's family now you know and, and being really clear about what it is that they're doing why they're doing it and, and making sure that they understand their thoughts and feelings are also a key consideration in coming to a decision chloe i know you are 
sitting in chambers at the moment. You're about to go back into court for a trial that's ongoing that you're you're dealing with. I think you're prosecuting in that one. So thank you so much for joining yeah, thank us. You, thank Chloe. you for your time and your expertise. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So that's it for today. We'll be back for that sentencing hearing when it happens. In the meantime, you can follow us on X at The Trial Podcast and contact us, the trial at mailmetromedia.co.uk. You can send us a comment on Spotify or even send us a voice note on WhatsApp on 07796 657 512. Start your message with the word trial. Trial.